may have that memorized by this point in time as we've been going through this uh, for so many weeks and uh, gaining encouragement from it. But we will read now verses 1 through 3 of Philippians 4. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Let's pray. Oh God, as we come to this passage now, we ask that you would encourage us, strengthen us by your Holy Spirit's power, give us insight, give us wisdom, and give us help. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I'm going to test your memory a little bit this morning because if you were here on Christmas Day, you can recall that we preached through uh, the passage in, in, in Isaiah chapter 9 and that passage that deals with our Lord Jesus Christ, that wonderful prophecy concerning wonderful counselor and so on that we looked at on that particular morning. But we also flipped back in Isaiah and looked at a particular prophecy found in, in chapter 7. I didn't have time at that at that point, to look at a different uh, prophecy concerning our Lord Jesus Christ in chapter 8. But in our reading last week, we encountered that prophecy once again. And so just as a lead up to Philippians, I do want to turn for just a few brief moments and look at 1 Peter chapter 2. Again, last Sabbath day morning, we looked at that in, in 1 Peter chapter 2 and a number of different highlights there. And I read over this, but I did not comment on this. And so I want to look at verse 7, and we see there, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And then also in verse 8, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And so we see there that the Apostle Peter is bringing to the forefront that which the prophet Isaiah spoke about all the way back in Isaiah chapter 8, which the Apostle Paul speaks about in Romans chapter 9 and verse 30. And we see Peter talking about that cornerstone here as well. But if we look back, we see not only is Christ the cornerstone, we see back in verse 4 that we are called a living stone. We are living stones in the Lord Jesus Christ. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. If I was to take you to the nation of Israel and you were to wander around all the different historical sites that we would go to, that I've had the pleasure of going to, it is an amazing place. But one of the things that you encounter when you are there is that you don't see concrete and two-by-four construction. You see old stone construction. And if you were to go to the Temple Mount, the Temple site, you can look at that first century stone that was way back when, uh, in the time of Jesus Christ, you would be able to see that cornerstone that is there. And that cornerstone is massive. The cornerstone measures 39 feet 4 inches long, 7 feet 10 inches wide, and 43 inches tall. That's a massive piece of stone. And it is some 80 tons of weight. More than 160,000 pounds of weight in that one cornerstone. And the amazing thing about a cornerstone is that it will set the rest of the building foundation. 
If that cornerstone is out and offline, the rest of the building that's erected is going to be offline. If that cornerstone is straight, then it's going to set the angles lengthways and widthways, and that building structure will be strong. If it isn't, it can implode, and it, or it could explode. Those walls could explode. And so we can see a very good practical example for us in that the Lord Jesus Christ is our cornerstone. It is He upon whom we build. And if we're not building on that firm foundation, if those walls are askew, then we can expect trouble. We can expect implosions or explosions. And we can get all askew in our lives. But you might wonder, okay, how do they harvest such stones as that? I mean, that's a massive stone. And you might think about all the other stones that are then built on top that aren't nearly as big, but are, are of good size as well. Well, what they would do is, is stone, as I said, was very limestone, very plentiful in the nation of Israel. And so they would go and they would drill holes and they would line up the holes, of course, in the dimensions that they would want. And then they would fill up these holes with water and they would put wood inside the holes. And what happens when, when wood gets waterlogged? It expands. And then that expansion would create a crack, a fissure, right along the line of where all those holes were drilled. And so they'd be able to harvest large chunks of rock that way and then be able to amazingly move them to the sites that they needed them. And sometimes they would just erect uh, buildings right there where they were harvesting the rock. It would be all, all done right there in place. And it is an amazing thing that we see happening there. But then how does that relate to Philippians? Well, one of the things that we've just read in Philippians is that there is sometimes problems that we encounter within the church, within relationships, within one another. And one of the ways that they would fit all these rocks together, all these, all these large pieces of limestone together, is by friction. By friction. And that is something that we see sometimes in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Where they would take these large pieces of stone, they would hew them, they would harvest them, they would chisel them, but they weren't perfect. And so what would happen is they would put them together and the friction would cause all those small pieces to break away and these, they would fit perfectly one with another. And so sometimes that happens within the Lord's church. There is friction. But fortunately for us, there is a path forward and the Apostle Paul gives us that path forward in Philippians chapter 4. And he also tells us, reminds us of those things that are truly important for us. And that's what we want to look at here this morning. But if you look at the passage, you can see that it begins with a therefore. And when we see a therefore, it's going to link the things that were taught before with the things that are now being expressed uh, going forward. And so that's exactly what we see here. And we see the Apostle Paul in verses or chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, letting us know that if we are building a foundation on our own righteousness, then come the last day, we are going to be sadly mistaken. To think that that is going to be acceptable before God, our own righteousness, our own good works, we are fooling ourselves. We must have a righteousness foreign to us. We need the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what Paul is explaining to us in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 3. He's saying, if anyone could have done it, I could have. And he lists for us all of the different ways with which he could be acceptable before God, if that were a path to salvation. But he reminds us that it isn't, that all those things are but rubbish. And he goes on to tell us, 
to press on in verses 12 to 17, to press on, to strain forward. And that is one of the amazing things about the Apostle Paul, isn't it? The Apostle Paul was not foreign to suffering. He was not foreign to sorrow in this world. He had a past, a very despicable past. And yet he says, in spite of all of those things, whether there be ministry successes or ministry failures, whether there be failures and and regrets in this world and in this life in my past, or good things that I've done up to this point as a Christian in establishing churches and ministering to people, seeing people come to Christ, miracles, all these different things, no matter what it is, I press on. I forget what lies behind and strain forward to what lies ahead. The Apostle Paul never got stuck, did he? He never got stuck looking back. He never got stuck in regrets. He was never spinning his wheels. He was always moving forward. It's one of the encouraging things about the Apostle Paul. He lived today forward. And that is the great thing about the Gospel. It's always today forward. We can't do anything about our past. Nothing. We submit it all under the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. We seek forgiveness for those things. And then we take heart that we have a forgiving God. And we apply the gospel to ourselves. We remind ourselves of the promises of God that we have as as ours as Christians, as believers in the Lord Jesus. We apply those things and we live today forward. That's always the answer that I have for people that come to me uh, for counseling, that that need encouragement, that have uh, different things that have gone on in their past. Live today forward. Don't live in the guilt and the shame and all of those different things that want to bind us, that want to make us stuck. The Apostle Paul didn't do that. He was always straining forward. He was always looking ahead. And we need to apply the gospel to ourselves and live today forward. That is what the Apostle Paul encourages us to do in chapter 3. And then he also, at the end of the chapter, reminds us of of our citizenship, that we are citizens of heaven. We see that in verse 20. That we are not living for this world. We don't live for this world. We live in this world, but not for this world. We are living for the next world. And by living in anticipation of the next world, we will then do the greatest good in this world. The more we live for the next world, the greater good we will do in this world. And also he reminds us of our lowly bodies, that they will one day, these bodies that are, that are failing around us, one day will be renewed. We'll put off this corruptible. We'll, we'll gain that which is incorruptible. We will finish our race and we will have a glorious body like Christ's body is. And so after all of that, Paul says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. And the thing that leaps off the page is us is just the repetition of all these ways in which the Apostle Paul has affection for the church at Philippi. He loves them very, very dearly. And we can see he calls them brothers whom I love, long for, my joy and crown. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Paul had a big heart. And to be a pastor, you must have a heart for people. But also, to be a Christian, you must have a love for your brethren. It's not just for pastors to people. It is for all of us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, united by that bond to love one another. And just in case you don't believe me, let's listen to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. In John 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 
That is from John chapter 13. And then, of course, the writer of John 13 is the Apostle John, who's known as the Apostle of Love, and who it is said, tradition tells us, that, that as he was advanced in years and old age, uh, he was unable to go to church, but other people brought him to church. And on one particular occasion, he was brought in on a chair, uh, of course, with four corners and four men bringing him in, and they put him down in front of the people. And the only thing he said that morning, because he was getting on in advanced in so many years and was, his health was failing, the only thing he said is, Beloved, love one another. And then he was brought out again. Beloved, one, love one another. Those were his most important words to the body of Christ, was to love one another. That was the thing of utmost importance. And he says in 1 John 4 and verse 7, Let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And, and 1 John 4, 11 and 12, If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. And then conversely, he says, if we don't love God, 1 John 3.14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. And so we see repeated through the scripture these types of sentiments, and we see the Apostle Paul doing so as well in Romans 13 and Ephesians 4. The Apostle Paul loved the church. Jesus loved the church. John loved the church. Do we love the church? You know, the church is the bride of Christ. And Christ thinks that his bride is beautiful. He died for that bride. Now yesterday, uh, some of you may have been at Layla and Nathan's wedding. And of course, the bride comes through that back door here right to the front and she's dressed in white and she's radiant and she's beautiful. But I'm sure if anyone knows Layla, as wonderful a person as she is, she is not perfect. She's not perfect. She has all sorts of imperfections we could grant. And that is similar to the bride of Christ presently now. We have all sorts of imperfections as the bride of Christ. But it is a bride that Christ loves. It is a bride that Christ thinks is beautiful. Do we love that bride? Are we, are we looking at that bride bride in all of its radiance and all of its splendor and seeking to protect that bride and strengthen that bride and live for peace and purity as the bride of Christ. And we know that right now that bride is not perfect, but one day it will be. And it'll be presented to the Lord Jesus Christ and there will be a marriage supper as we will feast with Christ on that great day that we look forward to. But Paul loved the church at Philippi, and he says that he longed for the church at Philippi. And just putting all the pieces of, of the puzzle together in terms of time, we would probably guess that it's around 10 years previous that the Apostle Paul had established the church at Philippi from the point that he's writing now this book to the church at Philippi. And it's probably about five years since he's seen them. And so you can imagine, as many of you have loved ones who are in other countries, and many of you have not seen your loved ones for many years, and you long to see them. You long to be reunited with them and to see them. And so all of us could understand to a degree of what it is like to miss someone. Perhaps it's someone who's passed away, and we long to be able to spend time with them once again. Um, but it's a time of great rejoicing that the Apostle Paul looks forward to to be able to see this church 
once again. He missed them and he remembers them fondly. He had a, he had a good and healthy relationship with the church there. And he also calls them my crown. Now the word crown here is like the crown of an athlete who wins that wreath that we've spoken about before. Remember that running to win the prize? He's talking about a wreath that you would gain as a reward for winning a particular race. And that is the imagery that we see here. This type of reward that would come from an Olympic event and winning, winning that particular challenge. And that is the way that the Apostle Paul uh, looked at them as a crown, as a reward. That relationship with them was so important to him that that was reward enough. Just having that bond and relationship was important to him, of utmost important, the love that he showed toward them. But that is not all. The Apostle Paul, lest we think that he is a sappy, sentimental, lovey-dovey kind of, of person, he reminds them to stand firm in this love. It's not just a love at all costs. It's not a love uh, at the expense of truth. We are to stand firm in the truth. And so the church isn't just a nice place to be loved and to love others. We have a purpose and a reason for being as part of Christ's church here. It's very important that we love one another. It's very important that we stand firm upon the truth. And the words stand firm mean to stand in one place, to be immovable. It's like the imagery of a soldier where they've locked uh, arms together and they are standing firm all with a single purpose. They are immovable. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, My beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Be steadfast, immovable, So if we want strength in our Christian life, spiritual stability, we need to have love and we need to have the truth. And I was reading this past week of uh, a number of different stories. I don't know if you've ever read Fox's Book of Martyrs before, but I was flipping through that for a half hour or so this past week because I was thinking of this and, and standing firm and all of these people from church history. We could look at the, you know, forerunners of the, the Reformation like John Huss and Wycliffe and people in the Reformation like Luther and Calvin and all these different people who stood firm for the gospel and stood against great great pressure. Um, And we can look at all the saints of the past who gave their very lives for the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that Fox's Book of Martyrs is a good reminder to us of the cost with which so many people gave their lives for the Lord Jesus. It's very graphic in some places. Uh, but it is an eye-opener to see how good it is for us to come to the Lord's house each Sabbath morning, each Lord's Day morning, to be able to worship our God with relative peace, uh, without this type of physical persecution that our brethren have faced in the past. But I heard this account of this African pastor in Zimbabwe who was martyred for his faith in the Lord Jesus. And as they were going through his belongings afterwards, they found this note. It was a note to himself. And it said this, My face is set. My goal is heaven. My road is narrow. My way is rough. My companions are few, but my guide is reliable. My mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, diluted, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice. Hesitate in the presence of adversity. Negotiate at the table of the enemy. 
ponder at the pool of popularity or meander in a maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up, or slow up until I've preached up, prayed up, and stood up for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means to stand firm in the face of difficulty. And it cost this man his life. It cost him his life. He got killed for it. Standing firm can come at a great cost. It can come at a great cost to us if we are students, in school, in the workplace, whatever the case is. It can come at a great cost to stand firm against a culture that is constantly wanting to pull us away from the Lord and from His church. And so that is point number one. Point number one, and if you're looking at the clock, it's, uh, the, the next few points will go much quicker. But that is point number one. Uh, the second thing that we see here is that real love and real truth are worked their way out in real life. Real life problems that we encounter within the church and with other people. And so we are to protect the unity of the church. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syndicate to agree in the Lord. To agree. I entreat. He implores them. He pleads with them. What does he implore them and, and plea with them? What is the basis of that? Is to agree in the Lord. That's the important thing that we see here. And if you look back to verse 1, you see stand firm thus in the Lord. We're to stand firm in the Lord. We are to, in verse 2, agree in the Lord. You can even see in verse 4 that we'll look at in, in the next few weeks. Rejoice in the Lord. And so all of these different things become a basis for us. Our relationship with the Lord Jesus is a basis for us to move forward in unity. That is what we are unified around. Now, we don't know anything really about these ladies. We see their names listed here. It's the only place they're written about in the New Testament. We don't know anything about them. We don't know anything about the argument that that they've been caught up in. We don't know to what extent that has affected the church, but we do know that Paul writes about it. So it must be of importance and of heartbreak to the Apostle Paul. And he points them back to that phrase, agree in the Lord, to look at the Lord. And we may believe that these ladies were there at the beginning of the church with the Apostle Paul as we look back in Acts chapter 16 and we see that Paul went to Philippi in Acts 16 and he wanted to go to a synagogue but there wasn't one because there wasn't 10 Jewish men in that town to be able to have a synagogue and that's what was required. You needed 10 Jewish men to have a synagogue. They didn't have that but they did have on the Lord's Day there was a prayer meeting down by the river and Paul goes down there the scriptures tell us, and he meets different people, including like Lydia and others. And we think perhaps that Euodia and Syntyche were there right from the beginning of the establishment of the church. We can't say for sure. But we do know this, that 2,000 years later, we are still talking about them. And we're not talking about them in a good way. We're talking about them because of something that was destructive in their lives and affecting the church. And so we must ask ourselves the question, how will we be remembered in the Lord's church? That is a searching question, isn't it? If someone in a hundred years from now was to uncover church documents and our name is recorded in there, in what way is it going to be recorded? That is the question that I read of one commentator this week. He said, if in a hundred years time your name was to be discovered in an old document, 
What one thing would you like the finder of that document to learn about you? That's a very searching question. And that is something that we see here with these ladies. The only way that we remember them is because of discord. And so that is a a great admonition to us to be careful and to uh, guard the peace and purity of the church. And we see here, as I mentioned already, that solution. That it is in the Lord that we find solutions. It is in the Lord that the basis of relationship is made with one another. And so we are to stand firm in the Lord. We are to rejoice in the Lord. And we are to agree in the Lord. Now we have to be careful. That doesn't mean that unity does not necessarily mean uniformity. We are still welcome to our own opinions. But we have to make sure that those opinions don't fracture the body of Christ. That we have unity in the Lord's church. Now there was a study done by a a psychology uh, journal, and they wanted to find out about orchestras and what made orchestras sound so good. And one of the things that they discovered was that the people in the various departments of an orchestra don't necessarily get along together, don't necessarily like each other, think all kinds of horrible things about each other, especially the drummers, they're the worst. They found them to be obnoxious and loud, and just as you might characterize drummers. But what is the point? The point is, when they all got together into that orchestra pit, they were all united in a common purpose. They set aside all those prejudices. They set aside all their personal feelings. They set aside all those things that would, that would bring disunity and discord. They didn't all do their own thing with the instruments. They all played to the leadership of the conductor. That's the important thing about an orchestra. They followed the lead of the conductor. And that's what we see in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We all want to follow the lead of our conductor, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we do that, unified in purpose, then we are of much greater strength. We are not distracted by the things that could fracture us. We are united by all of those things that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the solution. The solution is found in the Lord And the third and final point that I have here in my notes, excuse me, is that we are together for the gospel, for the sake of the gospel. We are together as a gospel coalition for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see in verse 3, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women, we don't know who this person was, true companion, who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement, that's probably not Clement of Rome, and the rest of my fellow workers, again, we don't know who they are, their names are not recorded, but where are they recorded? Whose names are in the book of life. Just like yours is, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Your name is recorded in the book of life. But what the Apostle Paul points them to is union with Christ and the unity that they have as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and how those things should unify them for a common purpose. Now, what is the unity of purpose of the Lord's church? What is the unity of purpose of the Lord's church? Well, we could, we could think of two great pillars that there are in the Lord's church. And that is the great command and the great... Somebody say it. Commission. The great commission. The great command and the great commission. Those are our unities of purpose. The great command to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbor as ourself and the great commission to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth, to every creature, 
teaching and admonishing and, and baptizing in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. These are the two great pillars of purpose that we have as a church. And all other things that detract from those purposes can become a great distraction to us and get us off course and get us offline and to not have that cornerstone erected in a way in which God is going to be most glorified. And so if you have disagreements that are dividing you, I would invite you to look to the Lord, to agree in the Lord and to focus on those pillars and purpose that we should have as a church, the great commission and the great command. Everything else is a distraction. Now we know that that Paul loved the church. We know John loved the church. We know Jesus loved the church. He prays for the church's unity in John 17 in his high priestly prayer, that we would be one, just as him and the Father are one, that we would be united as one. And so we need to take this to heart and be able to strive for the peace and purity of the church. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, we do thank you that you are so good to us, that we have so many answers that are found in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, O God, that you would help us as a church to be unified. We thank you for the unity that we do have. We thank you for each one that strives for that peace and purity. And we know, God, that you will honor that. So help us to honor your great name by seeking your name to be advanced in this city and in this country and in this world. And we pray, Lord, that we would have a great focus on the great commission. We thank you for each each missionary that we support. We ask that you would bless each one of them. We thank you for missions that we do here at home for each one of us who is a missionary in the workplace, in our families, at school, wherever it is, that you call us to be those who are leaving their mark in this world. And we pray that it would be a good and positive influence through your gospel and that when people encounter us, they would encounter, as it were, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would help us to honor you in the great command, to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that you would guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, for your glory's sake. Amen.